Turn with me to the book of Acts. A couple of weeks ago, I was in the book of Acts, and uh, I'm going to be dabbling in the book of Acts throughout the next year or two, off and on. And it's not one of those letters, it's not one of those narratives that you just go through verse by verse, and three or four years later, you've tackled Acts. Acts is one of those things that you go to as needed. Of course, we read it, and we should read all of Scripture. But the book of Acts is not a prescriptive thing. It's not something that Luke wrote so that he could command the church. Matter of fact, the Gospels aren't for that purpose at all. This is one of the malpractices of the Christian faith. Is that we see a sentence, we say that it's in the Bible, ergo it's biblical, and therefore we must apply it to our lives in lockstep. That's not the case. And taking the book of Acts, which is a historical record of the account of the apostles after the ascension of Jesus, is for our benefit. It is for us to learn what God did to establish the church. But some people say, well, this is really about the acts of the Holy Spirit. No, it's the acts of the apostles. Jesus Christ has done the work of establishing his church, and Luke has written about it so that the church and unbelievers alike may know what took place. And so when we find something that we may think we should start to mimic or model, we must also find that teaching and that instruction and those commandments in the New Testament letters, because it is in the letters where the elders and overseers of the church are taught how and what to do And then the church there is also commanded through the apostles' teaching on what we ought to be doing. But we live in a day where the Christian faith is just a dime a dozen. This faith, that faith, the other faith. Gospels are everywhere. False gospels are everywhere. Even amongst what we would call orthodox people, um, you can find all sorts of hairy mess, garbage. But at the end of the day, God's word stands true. And it's very simplistic. It's very easy to just read it and absorb the material. The problem is when we as a culture have decided we define it. As Brother Trey prayed earlier, it's not about what James thinks the Bible is trying to say. It's about what the Bible literally is saying. And of course, everybody, what? Everybody claims that. Oh, it's biblical. My view is biblical. The Word of God says. Yeah, but does the Word of God say to apply it the way we apply it? God has purposed that those who believe by His power, by His grace, in His promises concerning His Son for His people, are to be understood and known as the brethren, brothers and sisters in the faith, in Christ Jesus To be found in Christ is a promise of the Father. It is a promise of the Father we call the gospel, which is an extremely historically manipulated word, but it basically comes from the idea of God spell, God speak, good news, good report, good story. The word literally means good story. So when we hear of evangel or evangelon, which would be the transliterated Greek 
iteration of the word gospel. It means the story, the good story, or the good report. And so the gospel is a report given by God, established in the days of old, in the day of creation, where God imposed his sovereign grace in the lives of the first family who, when left to themselves in every circumstance, as all humanity would do and as all humanity has done, will fall into sin and rebellion. That only he can create light from darkness. Only he can create chaos. I mean, order out of chaos. Only he can create something from nothing. Therefore, the gospel is the picture of Genesis, the creation account. The creation account is the picture of the good Report of God's sovereignty and the salvation of a people that he would create for himself. And so when we look at these things, we need to keep in mind that we come together as the church because it is what God has prescribed. We see it in the New Testament letters. Every single one of them supposes, and I would say that imposes, a great understanding that we are obligated to be in the fellowship of the church. It is not an option. It's not if we feel like it, if we've got nothing else to do, if we're not tired. It's an obligation. It is a greater obligation than the job you do tomorrow morning. Why? Because it has eternal consequences. It has life consequences for other people. We are responsible by the promises of God to be together as a people so that our needs are met spiritually and physically according to the promises of Scripture. And there is no such thing as pocket camaraderie, remote, online intimacy. It does not exist. If you think that exists, then find somebody on Twitter, make them your spouse, and never see them. Yeah, I got a wife somewhere. You see, it doesn't work like that. Children are born, ship them off to some foreign land, and put a remote camera in front of them. Hey, baby, how you doing? You getting so big? How old are you now? All right. You got something on your face. Wipe your face. Can't wipe your face. The church is so important that it is the way God has chosen to reveal His glory. The body of Christ together in local proximity and local promises through the local means of grace, as for those of you who know what I'm saying when I say that. God has revealed himself through us. Our togetherness, our one anotherness, our intimacy. Not our cultural stands, not our political platforms. That's hogwash. That's all of the enemy, folks. All of the enemy, because it takes away from the sovereignty of God in picture. It doesn't matter about what's going on in the world. What matters is, is our God sovereign? And if so, we ought to live in a way that proves and shows that we trust in his sovereignty, that we've been granted by his great good promises, the spirit of Christ that lives within us, To help us, the paraclete, the one that comes alongside, the helper that helps us 
walk, and trust together. There is no such thing as an individual believer who is not outside the will of God. But yet, the Lord's will be done. Why the emphasis so much on the local church? That's my job. That's what I'm called to deal with. That's the point of my life. I get up every day, and as much as I want to try to focus on other things, the Spirit of God just drives me back to you. Prayer and purpose and everything else. So here Luke writes two pieces of literature. And let's go to the book of Acts, first three verses. all I'm going to deal with today. Beautiful church, part five-ish, I guess. And I'm going to establish a lot of things that you may not see today, but we may unpack them or we may just let them sit as they are. But I want you to see how to read the Bible today. How to apply it. How to, how to just let it take a breath in and simply see it and what it says and then let it refer to itself in kind. Dr. Luke, the physician. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Here it is. How long has it been since you read the introduction to the book of Acts? The Acts of the Apostles. Well, what does Luke do? Well, there's several things that we need to see that not only he does here, but also in his gospel. One, he refers to the first writing, the first book of his writing, which is his account of the good report of Jesus Christ. He calls it what it is right there. I've dealt with all the things that Jesus began to do and teach. I've already written to you, O Theophilus. Now the word Theophilus means the lover of God. <coughs> We're not intended to know who he is or find him on the history line or, or find him in other places. We're not intended to go around and, and, and learn deep things about Theophilus. But what we do know is that he was indeed a wealthy man and he was indeed someone of great importance. Because he commissioned... Luke, to tell him about these things. I mean, let's go to Luke's gospel for a second. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to complete a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, in order that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have already been taught. 
Now think about that for a second. Here is Luke writing to this most excellent Theophilus, this leader of men, this prestigious person who he has already shared the gospel with. And in order for him to solidify the questions that Theophilus probably proposed, he said, I'll tell you what I'll do, Theophilus. I will write a whole gospel account. I'll write a, a, a full good report. See, the good report of Luke, right? I'll write an entire good report of everything concerning Jesus' actions and teaching, and I will present it to you. And after he was done with that, Luke realized by the Holy Spirit that there is more to be said concerning the, the, something as important as the gospel. And what is it? The church. <laughs> the point for which Christ came. The point for which the Lord said, let there be light, is to create the local, visible, living church. You see, it's why God created all things to display all that he is and reveal everything that he wanted to reveal concerning himself by creating a people for himself. Folks, we say sole deo gloria. We talk about to glorify God, to glorify God. We think that's done in our, in our singing, in our spirit, in our emotions, and in our feelings. It's done in the presentation of our lives together as a people, simply submitting to the doctrines of Christ in their application to show the world that is extremely perplexed by us a love that is not of this world. Any preacher of righteousness who neglects the teaching of and to the local visible church is a negligent buffoon. Dogma gets us in trouble sometimes. But that's the attitude of Christ and his apostles. You do not neglect the full counsel. It's not about theological answers and systematics. It's not about language studies and church history. I love all those things. I love them all. But I love a lot of other stuff too. The question is, do you love Christ? And if you say yes, then you love his church. Good, bad, Ugly, pretty, correct, incorrect, truth, and error. You love his church. So here, let's unpack a few things about Jesus. Because the gospel is a narrative about Jesus. And beloved, I'm going to say that. I've said it a thousand times over because, you know, I'd love to preach through Luke. <laughs> But then I'd have to neglect John. No, I'm just but if we take the Gospel of Luke, Gospel of John, Gospel of Mark, Gospel of Matthew, and we just bind it together just by itself and we throw it out on the sidewalk and by some sovereign purpose of God, 
A six-year-old child who can read picks it up off the sidewalk and sits under a tree and reads it from start to finish. God in His business will convert that child as He wishes. Without any further explanation, without any more diving into the depths of theological things, without anything else, God of the Spirit Himself will convert His people through the hearing of His good report about His Son. And you don't have to read the whole gospel. There's this strange, bizarre Gnosticism that goes around the world that The antithesis of is this strange mysticism that goes around the world. And the mysticism says, oh, we don't need the Bible, we don't need to talk about it. They just live, love, and laugh, and hee hee. Oh, you're a believer now. Of what? That's nonsense. But yet, regeneration is mystical. It is the work of God the Spirit. Through the natural means of His Word being spoken and heard. And then it's also... And this weird Gnosticism, which is a seeking of knowledge, we we are so inundated with information that some people think they're converted because they have the right information. What a legalism. Talk about a new law. Man, would the Pharisees have loved to get their teeth into that one and smash the head of the people and bring them under bondage. That's why so many people have a love affair with their salvation experience. It's their greatest idol. I remember the time when I got saved and I came to know this. Your salvation isn't about what you know. It's about Christ knowing you. Your salvation isn't about what you've done or how you've appropriated the information you've gathered or even what God the Holy Spirit has done inside of you to make you understand it. That is nothing but work. Your salvation is according only and always and forever the death of Jesus Christ on the cross according to the promises of God before the foundation of of the world. He said, let there be light. Jesus says, I am the light and this is why the world exists. That my people will see me for what I am because I have shown myself to them. And yes, it's about righteousness, it's about justification, it's about imputation, it's about sanctification. It's about all these great English words that did not even exist in the world when the Bible was written in any form whatsoever, ever. But yet those silly little goofy words are the catalyst for many of the world to know they are of Christ. Bull. Christ. Luke says, I wrote to you, O Theophilus, already dealing with the vital importance of life. All that Jesus began to do and all that Jesus began to to teach. You see that? When we see Acts, and we saw it a couple of weeks ago when I was preaching, we saw... What? We saw that the first church, the early birth of the people together in intimacy, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the teaching of what Christ did and what Christ taught. And if either one of those two pillars are missing, the church is not the church. And the believers are not the believers. And there's an incomplete and inconsistent 
knuckleheadedry that creates havoc in the world. Because when we are not sitting comfortably in the perfection of Jesus Christ and his teaching and his work of justifying a people, in his work of redemption, then we are free to elaborate in our little minds all sorts of creative ideologies. Well, I wonder here. I wonder there. I wonder how. Let's posit the hypotheticals of hypotheticals of hypotheticals and see what God must have been like or if he was like this, maybe here. Guys, it's nonsense. That's not the faith of a child. That's the faith of an idiot. The faith of someone who is not, who's thinking that our thinking or that our faith or that our belief systems are the catalyst through which God will do His work and apply His redemption. No, God applies His redemption to us and we are called to learn about the person of Jesus. How many professors have I sat under through the years? How many papers have I read and written I can't tell you the hundreds, maybe thousands through the years of people who were unconverted, who were confessed atheists, but could articulate the gospel of grace as if they were God's right-hand man. Because it doesn't take conversion to articulate material. It doesn't take a a supernatural work of some divine entity for us to understand what we read and apply. If our children can understand chemistry, if we can teach complex mathematics to third graders, beloved, there are children who are three and four years old who are composing complex piano pieces. Who in their mind, without anything out here to listen to, are notating 15 and 20 staff sonatas. And we don't think it's possible for people to be able to work within the context of a biblical framework of information. Don't feel like you're safe. From the wrath of God because you are smart in your doctrine. And don't dare do what the Pharisee did and say, I thank God I'm not dumb like this guy. That you've shown me the truth and I've got all the information. Don't be like that either. God propitiate for me. That's what the publican says. Satisfy your wrath for me. Provide My son, our God will provide for himself a sacrifice. Jesus is the point of the gospel. Jesus is the point of the church. Jesus is the God that came into the world. What is it that Theophilus is being reminded of here? What are you being reminded of, beloved? All these things that Luke has already told Theophilus. And I don't know if you really spend some time in the Gospel of Luke. But I'm going to tell you right now. It'll well your soul with tearful joys. I mean, you think about it for a second. Jesus Christ came into the world. 
How? Through the promise of God the Father throughout millennia. <coughs> How? By a young woman named Mary, a virgin. And the Spirit of God came upon her, and she conceived. Jesus Christ wasn't conceived in human ways. Jesus Christ didn't appear into the world through human intimacy. Jesus Christ, the God of creation, came into the womb of a woman that He created and was human by the Spirit of God. Took on humanity. I got some hot takes on that, but now's not the time. And I've been warned. <laughs> don't, don't pull the scabs off. But beloved, Jesus Christ, Luke wrote about Him. He said, He's coming to the world according to the promise of God. He's coming to the world through this woman who praised the Lord. He came into the world that He made through the means through which He made, but it was divine work. He entered into the world in the moment that He saw fit. Stepping out of His divine prerogative, taking on humanity, the Creator God of the cosmos being a zygote, divinely created in the uterus of a young woman. What is that? That's part of the good report. In fact, that's the foundation of the gospel. It's not the law. Law is this guilty verdict. The law is not gospel. It's death. The law came a long, long time after the gospel. The promise of redemption for God's people in spite of them and then Luke goes on to teach Theophilus other things he talked about Zechariah and Elizabeth and the forerunner that would come and the spirit of Elijah it's not reincarnation folks it's not the point if I come in the spirit of unity I'm coming to seek out unity I'm coming to do that which is unifying if I come in the spirit of love I'm doing that which is beneficial for all fair to all Right and good for all. I'm not, not like Cupid's ghost. His name shall be John. John, the one who is going to be talked of for years and comes back into the scene. And you know about John. And John is the one who says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Behold, the man of whom sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Behold, you know what he was saying there? I'm not even worthy to wash the feet like a slave of this man Jesus. This man Jesus who came into the world and who disappeared into obscurity because that is the will of the Father. And then at the age of 30 comes back out into the world that John, the, the miracle son of Elizabeth and Zechariah, the cousin of Mary, that when Mary got news from the angel that she was with child, she walks into the household of Elizabeth who was nearly, what, six months or so pregnant? I don't know the timeline off the top of my head. And the Bible says that 
filled with the Holy Spirit, the embryo of John left with the joy of the Lord in her belly. And she felt the joy of God Almighty inside of her flipping around because this man was in the presence of his God. The incarnate Son of God, Jesus the Christ. This is the good news, the good report, the good story of this crazy idea that the God of heaven would come into the world through this divine supernatural way that He may be the Redeemer of His people, His gathered ones, the church. I reveal all that the Father is in Myself, Jesus says. All that the Father gives Me comes to Me. All that I am saying is what the Father was saying. All that I am doing is what the Father was already doing. Everything that I'm doing is the revelation of My Father to you, My people. And we want to make the church a secondary, of secondary importance. Oh, please. Please. We're not doing it right in our cultures. But beloved, it doesn't matter if we're doing it right or not. We better learn to be more correct. Jesus said a whole lot of stuff. He did a whole lot of things. He came and and, and, and at at his first miracle, he takes ceremonial washing jars of water that were there for show anyway, of a show of piety, and he turns them into wine, showing, as we saw in John's Gospel, that he is the greater bridegroom. He doesn't even take credit for his work. He gives the credit to another, the one who failed, the one who did not provide for his family. Because he loved Lazarus, he stayed an extra few days that Lazarus might die, that it would not end in death, but that God would be revealed for himself, glorified. That's what that means. And seen for who he is in the death of Lazarus when Jesus Christ came into Bethany and said, remove the stone. And they said, oh no, Lord, (laughs) he'll smell. Jesus says, remove the stone. And by the command of God, this God-man said, Lazarus, come out of there. And Lazarus, bound from head to toe, stood at the door of that tomb. And Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. And the theologians of that day met that afternoon and they said to themselves we can't fight against this guy he has the power of life let's kill him talk about blind stupidity but it was the will of the father to strike him to crush him Jesus Jesus died. Jesus, for three and a half, four years, preached the righteousness of God, preached the kingdom of God, preached against the established self-righteousness of the culture, preached grace upon grace upon grace, called Himself the Son of God, called Himself the Son of Man. He ate. He used the bathroom. He wiped His backside. 
He was thirsty. He was tired. He sweated. He probably stubbed his toe a few times. He was truly man. And by the will of God the Father to save his church, Jesus Christ was arrested, acquitted, and crucified. Oh, what a story. What a hallmark moment of such a kind and gentle and loving man that did nothing but good, that healed people. Man born blind. Who sinned, Lord, that that man was born blind? Him or his parents? I don't want to preach John again, but you know what that implies. And Jesus says, neither. This man was born blind that God may be seen for who he is. That the glory of God may be revealed. That which is blind can see. That which is lame can walk. The pool where the paralytics laid, where the rumor and the myth of the angels touching the water and the first one in gets healed and all this other kind of stuff. The paralytic with no one to help him move. Jesus says, do you want to get healed? I don't have anybody to help me in the water. I've been here 38 years. 38 years. We can't last eight minutes in the drive through 38 years I've been here and I've had nobody to help me get in the water and Jesus commands him. He doesn't discuss things. He doesn't get this man's theology right. This man is living in a a world of darkness and blindness and depravity. This man is dead spiritually. This man is putting his hope in all sorts of myths. But God the Son, Jesus the Christ, Messiah, said to him in commanding state, Stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. And the man stood up and picked up his mat and walked. He did what he could not do by the command of his Creator. He did what he should not do by the command of his spiritual authorities by taking up his mat. And then he showed the world by going to them. And what do they say? Not, oh, Brother Bill, you haven't ever walked. We've seen you decaying by the pool over there. Look at your legs. Look at your walking. They see him walking in with his bed under his arm, which is like a beach towel. And they immediately say, who told you to pick up your bed? That's against the law. I don't know, but I had no choice. This is the Jesus, the things that he began to do. The things that Luke was writing about. To prepare a people for himself in righteousness so that when Luke wrote the Acts of the Apostles, we would understand the work of Christ continues. Jesus himself then taught a lot of things. He says what? You will do greater things than these. That's why people need to learn to read the Bible and its prescription. And know the difference in what we're instructed to do versus what we're reminded to know happened. 
But Jesus died. Jesus died. And that death accomplished our joy. That death accomplished our redemption. That death satisfied the wrath of God. And of course, I don't want to get into the philosophy of understanding the eternality of God beyond time. He created it, but it's necessary sometimes when we start to dig or lay awake at night. But God is not change. He is not learning. God is always, forever, and always has been the same. His decrees don't have a beginning and an end. They are eternal. Everything about God is always, and everything God desires is done already. Paul establishes this in Romans chapter 8, where he uses even glorification in the past tense. And I can even argue theologically, just as we saw in Psalm 27 this morning at the beginning of our service, is that there is a sense in which we are standing glorified this very moment. Because it is done. So the first couple who were promised the seed of the woman to crush the head of serpent, covered by the blood of the true lamb, clothed in a new righteousness and a new skin. Those first people are a picture of grace through the finished work of Christ just like anyone today who comes to believe in what Jesus did. To trust in what Jesus did. And the story continues that after the third day, or on the third day of his death, that they went to see his body and continued to prepare him, and he was not there. And the angel of the Lord, the messenger of God, as the women are looking into the tomb and weeping that someone has stolen the body of their Lord, he asked the question, what are you looking for? He's not here. And then later, Jesus himself appears to them, right? Go tell them that I'm alive. Just like he came into the world through his divine creative power, he came out of the grave in the same way. And this is the story, the report of Christ. This is nonsense. To the logical mind. This is ridiculous. This is mythology. This is no different than you know, all these other gods and goddesses and weird things that we've heard through the ages. It's like Gilgamesh or Harry Potter or any other hero who dies to save the good from the villain. And Jesus dies to save the villains and call them good. And so it's very logical for us to have conversations in the world like a guy like Theophilus and his great honor and great wealth and great power and great prestige and people look at him. So if Theophilus began to start having some weirdness about him following around these Christians who are so zealous that they're walking away from their lives to be together, it's not prescriptive, it's historical. Necessary then. One might say, well, you know, Theophilus got a lot to lose. But yet he wanted to know. And Luke spent a lot of time. As a matter of fact, if you take the totality of the New Testament just in volume, Luke wrote most of it in volume. 
you've not read Luke's Gospel and the, and, and the Acts of the Apostles in the last while, it's one of the longest reads you'll do. So here we have this gospel now, this Jesus, this God who becomes man through divine work, then does a lot of miracles and teaches a lot of things, then dies, then comes back from the dead. Oh, Theophilus. It doesn't end there, remember. It doesn't end there. He did a whole lot of other stuff until the day he was taken up. And then he taught a whole lot of things. He gave commands. I want you to think about this. And this is a, this is a sermon on the sufficiency of all Scripture for our joy. Because Christ is our joy. He says, then Christ, verse 2, he gave commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now think about that for a second. So people argue, well, you know, I don't necessarily think this book of the Bible is authoritative or Paul was talking here because they're not reading it. They're picking out verbiage that suits their own agenda. Beloved, don't do that. Don't read Acts chapter 2 in a vacuum. Don't read Romans chapter 1 in a vacuum. Read the letters. Read the instruction. Hear the tone, the timbre. Understand what God has commanded us through the apostles. Listen, when other than a very few exceptions, when an apostle has written something that we call scripture, it is a command from Christ himself. It's non-negotiable. Well, I don't have to obey Jesus for salvation. I'll let that rest there in a simple sense to say, nah, you don't have to follow everything he tells you to do and live correctly and love correctly. But you're worthless if you don't. And the foundation of all this submission to his authority, to his good report, to his finished work, is to be a church. To be a people for his glory. Why? Because that's how he chose to reveal himself to his people, through his people. And then he gave commands through the Spirit to the apostles that he chose. These men, none of their writings say, you know, I'd, I, when I was about 14, I just thought to myself, you know, I think I'd like to be an apostle. I think I'm going to be a disciple of Christ, I'm going to be a preacher. That's the problem with today's world now. Everybody has a little theological chops and they think they're called to the ministry. Folks, theological chops do not make a man qualified for the pastorate. It is a divine call that he cannot stop. It is a divine call that only God himself can remove. And it is about loving God's people through the teaching of the apostles, for the sake of our joy and teaching the body to do that which we've been instructed to do so that our joy is complete and the honor and glory of our Father is established before men. And that's an, in a nutshell. I 
And then secondary to that, we have a responsibility to our neighbors and to our enemies. Secondary. But it's still a responsibility. Next week I'll talk a little bit more about this particular statement. But the depth of our theology is evidenced by how we love our neighbor. And I can prove that Jesus and John and Paul and James and Peter, just off the top of my head, emphatically press that into the church. And Paul emphatically presses that into Timothy as an elder so that James Tippins can understand one of his primary purposes as a pastor, shepherd, overseer is to defend the church against nonsense in application as well as doctrine. Patiently, lovingly, kindly, gently, long-suffering. God's in charge, not me. If he wants to wait a year before he helps you see things clearly, that's fine. If he wants to show you before you get out of here and you have a hallelujah moment, that's fine too. Jesus Christ is alive. He is alive. Verse 3 of Acts 1, He presented Himself alive. He ate. He drank. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't a spirit. His body came back from the dead. He presented Himself alive after His suffering. By many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. He taught a lot of stuff. And beloved, that's why we're here, to learn about what Jesus taught, to learn about what Jesus did, and to live accordingly, to live according to the commands of Jesus for his people. It's all or none, sweetness. We can't pick and choose. And it starts with being together on the Lord's day in its minimum. It starts by being in the Bible, not on YouTube, not on sermon audio, not through a commentary, not through a a study. Those things are additions. And sometimes they become the main meal. I call them the aroma of the Christian faith. So I walk into the restaurant, smelling the food, giving them $100 and walking out. Folks, we need to eat the bread of life. Be in the fellowship of the body and come in the context of having read the Bible throughout the week. What part of the Bible? Just pick a New Testament letter and read it. Read it. Every single day, read the same chapter or two every single day and be in that discipline. And then all of a sudden things will begin to make sense. Things will start to unfold. We will start to see a little bit more emphatically what Christ has done and what Christ has taught. The kingdom of God. This is what Jesus talked about. 
People have made their entire theologies focused on this kingdom mindset. People have made their entire politics focused on this type of thing. Their economics focused on these types of things. This is not the point of Christ. There is nothing that will remain but Christ and his people. For the glory of God. That's it. Everything else, every other kingdom, every other picture, every other shadow, every other nation, even the United States, especially the United States of America, none of it will remain. None of it will remain. It's all part of God's grand design. But the kingdom of God is comprised of a people because that is the wisdom of God. The kingdom of God is about a people. And the kingdom of God is about a people who have organized themselves under the prescription of Christ himself through the teaching of the apostles that we may reveal him through our learning and living and that we would not stray from those things. And the kingdom of God is at hand. It's not about eschatology, the study of last things. It's not about the end of the world. It's not about a new world order. That's just nonsense. That's ridiculous stuff. That's smoke and mirror. That's part of the Thessalonian, uh, what Paul would say, that a great deception. Don't get bogged down in that garbage. It's simple. It's about Christ and his people. Because Christ and those who he has saved... Reveal the Father. Reveal His love and His purposes. And we could go on and on and on. And Jesus told us, let's, let's look at verses 4 and, and continue here for a second. And while staying with them, Jesus ordered the disciples, the apostles, not to depart from Jerusalem. But listen to this. Because we all have the question, right? Well, then now what? What are we to do? Well, we are to be disciplined in the practices of the prescription of Christ for his people in the orderly way, according to the scripture. He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. See, Jesus, as he told his disciples before his arrest, he said, I will send my spirit. The spirit of Christ. Jesus worked and operated by his power, by his spirit, God the Holy Spirit, in the world through signs and wonders. And now by the same spirit of Christ, we live and sit this day, born of God, not by our will, decision, and intelligence, born of God by His Spirit, our trusting, resting hope, which is faith, is a gift of God by the Spirit. And sometimes it's inexpressible, and depending on where we are intellectually and our ability to dive into certain things, we may never have theological chops to match the academics of the world. And that is perfectly beautiful. Beautiful. I didn't say anything about false Christ, false gospels. Folks, I don't, those things are not on my radar because I don't care. 
Because that is blasphemous for me to spend my time worrying about all that crap when that is the normal promise of God from the world. There will always be falsehoods. Whoop-de-doo! God is sovereign. Hallelujah! I'm okay. I'm okay. It is okay because Christ has purposed all of it. We're not the warriors. We're the slaves. We're not pulling out swords. We're washing toes. You see? Calm down, man. Let's just rest. That's a good word for me lately. Rest. I think it's all like, let's just rest. Nap time. We'll go to a two and a half hour service. We'll sleep for 90 minutes. So verse 6 of Acts 1, when they came together, let's just keep for a second. They asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? See how their focus was? <laughs> it's just kingdom of God, kingdom of Oh, Israel's come back. Temple's come back. Woo-hoo-hoo! We're going to have our, our people back together. We're going to really be somebody. We're going to be the sovereign grace community. Duh. We're going to be the Baptists. We're going to be the Evangelicals. Nah. It is not for you to know times and seasons, but for the Father is fixed by His own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of creation. End of the earth. And then they looked, and he floated up off the ground into the heavens and vanished before them. Don't you think about that. What is the call of the apostles, and what has the apostles then written by their narratives and histories and good report gospels and their letters for the body of Christ? And that is that we are his witnesses. And modern day evangelism is as backward as a three-toothed crocodile, as worthless as a toothless lion. We offer the gospel. We make opportunities for salvation. This is nonsense. The gospel is a proclamation of who Christ is and what he did and what he taught. And the power of God the Holy Spirit has called his people to be his witnesses. What does it mean to witness, to be a witness for Christ? Be as He calls us to be. Proclaim His teaching. And live according to His instruction. Jesus is the point. Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the God of glory. So, let us learn that our joy is Christ. And that when we see our joy waning, it's because we are not witnessing nor being the witness of Christ in the world. And by His grace, may we see the power of God in us. Let's pray. We thank You, Father, for the truth of the Gospel and for Your love for us, Your people. As we depart from this place today, Lord, let our hearts continue to be together. For the sake of your name, Father, teach us. Help us to grow deep in our understanding of truth. 
and deeply in love with one another. For only when we love each other are we able to say we love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.